What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Well, a happy Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Call to Communion. We ask that question every day. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We'd love to have you answer that for us at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is one. 205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And um, you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams sitting in for Tom Price. Michael McCall sitting in for Charles Beery producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky sitting in for himself. And Jeff Burson, magnificent person, is handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, Dr. David Anders, how are you? Jack, doing great. How about you? Terrific, thank you. I've got an email here from Brendan. Hi, Dr. Anders. I understand that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. The Council of Trent says, for the victim is one and the same, the same now offering by the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross, the manner alone of offering being different. I understand that the sacrifice of the Mass is an unbloodied sacrifice, unlike the cross, so we aren't re-crucifying Christ, but I'm not sure what is meant by the term sacrifice here. How is it a sacrifice if there is no life being given up? I've been speaking with a Protestant who is pointing to this question, as well as trying to get clarity about what the Council of Trent meant when they said the Christ is immolated at consecration. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So, uh, the premise of your question is mistaken, or there is a mistake in the premise of your question, because you assume that a sacrifice requires the death of a victim. That's not true. Sacrifice just means the giving of some good thing to God. That's all it means. And in the Old Testament, yes, there were sacrifices where the victim was killed. There were also sacrifices where the victim was not killed. Ever heard of the grain offering? Right? Uh, so there are uh, libations, the pouring out of wine, things of that sort. So there are all kinds of sacrifices that don't require the death of a victim. Now, moreover, let, let's consider the fact of the death of the victim in Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, many Protestants consider the death of Christ to be punishment imposed by God on Christ on our behalf, that God is punishing Jesus for things that we did rather than things that Jesus did, vicarious punishment. But when you look to what happens in the Old Testament sacrifices, you'll find that the death of the victim is not intended as punishment inflicted by God. The reason that the victim is killed 
is to deprive the worshiper of its use, not, not to expiate wrath upon an irrational animal. So imagine an Old Testament worshiper who brings, say, a sheep for sacrifice. And he says, God, I offer you this sheep. Come on, Dolly, let's go back home. Well, it's not much of an offering at that point, right? The, the purpose of, the, of the, the killing of the victim, namely the sheep, was not because God hates sheep or gets a kick out of the death of sheep, but by doing this, the worshiper deprives himself of its use and then a portion of the animal would be consumed, actually, by the priests that perform the sacrifice. Um, so, uh, so even when there is a death, it's not for the reasons that Protestants often assume. Now, um, so the, the, the sacrifice is twofold in, in the Eucharist. On the one hand, the rite itself, the, the ritual action, is being performed uh, in the honor of God. And the ritual action itself is considered to be a sacrifice, even, and there is a victim there who is not killed. Um, uh, there's also the interior sacrifice of the worshiper when we offer ourselves along with Christ, making an offering of our, of our body along with Christ's body. And that interior sacrifice, according to Pope Pius XII, is the element that makes the Mass sanctifying in our case. So if I, if I come to the Eucharist, but I am unwilling to make an offering of myself along with Jesus, then I'm not disposed to benefit from the graces of the sacrament. The immolation of Christ in the sacrament is only symbolic. There is no actual immolation of Jesus. There's no actual killing of Jesus. The reason for the double consecration, the reason we have bread and wine and not just bread or just wine, is because when presented in that manner, in this twofold consecration, bread over here, body of Christ, blood over there, wine, uh, blood of Christ, it shows forth Jesus in a state of victimhood. Now, he's not actually a victim. He's not actually killed. But his death is memorialized through the double consecration of the elements. And so his presence is real. It's not merely symbolic. It's the real presence, true substantial presence of Christ. But the death is represented only symbolically. There's no actual death taking place in the Eucharistic sacrifice. 833-288-EWTN. That is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five and you can always send us an email we would love to hear from you that way simply send the email to ctc at ewtn.com that's ctc at ewtn.com. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Ed in the great state of Michigan, and we've got plenty of time and a couple of open lines for your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders.
Great new book for you for the month of November from EWTN Publishing, Rejoicing in Our Hope, Meditations for the Advent and Christmas Seasons by Bishop Robert J. Baker. He shares stories and reflections on sacred scripture, the saints, popes, and other famous individuals that provide hope and inspiration for the Advent and Christmas seasons. These brief, power-packed meditations include penetrating daily questions for reflection and action. They also offer a prayer for each day while lighting the Advent or Christ candle. Through Bishop Baker's inspiring words of wisdom, you will receive time-tested ways of fruitfully preparing for Advent, and you'll also learn one tangible way to overcome the fear of death, uh, the regimen for overcoming addictive behavior, and much, much more. Rejoicing in Our Hope, Meditations for the Advent and Christmas Seasons by Bishop Robert J. Baker, available now at EWTNRC.com by Catholic Shop EWTNRC.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Still two open lines for you there. First up today is Ed in the great state of Michigan, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Ed, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. What can we do for you today? Well, I I, I, I was thinking about purgatory and... Personally, I don't think it exists. All right. I looked up all the passages that they say explains it, and I read them over and over, and it doesn't seem like any of them explain anything about purgatory in any way, shape, or form. I mean, it it doesn't say anything about it. So I don't believe... And one of them said, look up Luke, and that was where the guy died on the cross, and God said, you go to purg- you go to paradise with me. Well, how come he didn't have to go to purgatory? Okay, yeah, great. I really appreciate the questions. So I have a lot to say on the topic, as you might imagine. One of them is I'm wondering if you and I are looking at the same Scripture verses. Maybe not. Uh, I wonder if you're familiar with the passage in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, where the people of God offer prayers on behalf of the dead. Um, or in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, when Paul prays for his deceased friend Onesiphorus. Because, see, the, the dynamic of offering prayers from the dead, for the dead, is something that predates Christianity, and uh, we find evidence uh, in the New Testament and has always been a part of Christian history. So outside of the New Testament, uh, we have clear testimony f- uh, to prayers on behalf of deceased Christians. Say, for example, uh, Origen of Alexandria, who was you know, between, say, 185 and 230, um, it, it explains the doctrine of purgatory quite explicitly in the practice of praying on behalf of those who've died. Um, Origen says, if a man departs this life with lighter faults, he is condemned to fire which burns away the lighter materials and prepares the soul for the kingdom of God where nothing defiled may enter in. So that's uh, late 2nd century. Tertullian, a North African theologian, uh, says the widow who doesn't pray for her deceased husband has as good as divorced him. A famous quote from... Uh, second century about the dynamic of praying for the dead. St. Cyprian in the 250s uh, explicitly mentions the doctrine of purgatory, St. Augustine in the 4th century. We could go on and on with patristic quotations from a very, very, very early period. Um, So we have prayers for the dead in the Old Testament, prayers for the dead in the New Testament, prayers for the dead in the early patristic period that are explicitly linked to an understanding to a doctrine of purgatory. Um, I I wonder if you've considered... Passages like Second Samuel 12 and Second Samuel 24, which 
I grant you do not make any explicit mention of purgatory, but they do explicitly mention the idea of penance for sins that have already been forgiven. Or Psalm 24, Matthew chapter 5, Old and New Testament alike, which teach the necessity of purity of heart as the condition of the vision of God. And so the way that you do Christian doctrine, whether you're talking about purgatory or the Trinity or what have you, is you, you, you find in sacred scripture and in sacred tradition uh, these uh, highly suggestive texts and practices, and then you have to go about making sense of them. So what's the value in praying for the dead? Why does the church do it? Why has the church always done it? Why did the Jews do it? Um, what's the logic there? Um, where did second century church fathers like Origen get the idea that the afterlife was a place where faults could be purged through purifying fire prior to the vision of God. And you see that that's very coherent with the way the Old and New Testaments both think about the vision of God. And you have an explicit doctrine of purgatory emerge in late antiquity. Well, not that late, actually, um, as understood of apostolic origins. So it's quite reasonable that the Church in an authoritative way, would dogmatically teach the doctrine of purgatory, given that it is believed at least implicitly from the very beginning. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Caleb is a first-time caller in Springfield, Missouri, listening on Catholic Radio Network. Caleb, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hey, Dr. Anders. Um, Hi. So, first-time calling, sorry, kind of nervous. Um, so, yes, and why we haven't become Catholic yet. And uh, I consider myself, I, I think I consider myself a Catholic. I, I hate the doctrine. I, sorry, I just ran up some stairs. I, um, I believe nearly everything in the Catechism, but what's been a stumbling block for me is the doctrine of um, the Pope as the head of the Church. I understand it in a symbolic sense, so I could affirm it if it was more of a symbolic head of the Church um, rather than the head of the Church on Earth and the placeholder for Christ. And that's, you know, I attend Mass daily when as much as I can, I uh, I studied everything. I I say the rosary. I pray for the dead. I, I've done. I believe it, but I can't affirm that in good conscience right now. Why not? And, uh, I'm sorry. Why not? Why can't you affirm it? Because the. I guess it's the wording. If I went through RCIA and I I got to the point where they asked me, do you believe that the Pope is the head of the Church? I I just couldn't be honest with myself and say yes, because I believe as a symbolic figure, as a... As a um, so let me, let me see if I understand the, the objection. So your problem is specifically with the idea of the Pope exercising actual jurisdiction. I, I believe so. The, the authority that he has over the churches. Okay. 
And that's a problem for you. Why? Um, I'll be honest with you. I think it's because I, I was raised independent fundamental Baptist, um, in a, in a, a church that operated democratically. Um, when I look at church history, I see the churches operating autonomously, um, independently in the first centuries. Okay, can I, let me stop you right there. Let me stop you right there. Because um, I'd like to have—this is a dialogue, okay? But I can only handle one okay. issue at a time. Um, right. I know you, you, you were raised in the IFB. I know you've read the New Testament probably backwards and forwards. Does it appear to you in Acts chapter 15 that the various congregations scattered around the ancient world have the right to refuse the apostolic judgment rendered in Acts chapter 15 about the inclusion of Gentiles in the Mosaic Law? Or do you think that the decision of the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem was mandatory for anybody alive at the time who was a Christian? I, um, reading through that and what I've always been taught is that it was a, uh, it was something agreed upon by all the churches at the same time. Is there anything in the text that says that, say, the Church of Ephesus or the Church of Corinth got a vote in Jerusalem? I don't believe so. No, there isn't. And the light, you've read, I know you've read the letter, that the circular letter that they sent out to all the churches, and I know you know the wording. It says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to deliver the following to you. And they lay down a principle that becomes church law everywhere. So there's no, there's no hint in Acts chapter 15 of any kind of democratic or republican government and of buy-in from various otherwise independent congregations. Nothing in the text that says that. Um, and I know you've read Acts chapter 14, the immediately preceding chapter, when it discusses the, the establishment of leadership in the various congregations, and I, I trust you remember what it says. It says that the apostles appointed priests. The word Greek word, of course, is presbyteroi. The apostles appointed presbyters in each of the churches. The, the, nothing in Acts chapter 14 says that those officers were voted upon. Rather, the apostles appointed them. And I'm sure you've read the pastoral epistles, Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus. There's nothing there that suggests that Crete was democratically electing Titus. Paul says, the reason I left you in Crete was so that you, Titus, would appoint people to sacred offices to handle this ministry when I've passed on and you've passed on. There's not a, there's not a word in there about democratic elections, but rather apostolic appointment of a successor who is authorized to appoint successors. That's, that's what the text says. I, I know you've read it, right? And, and mm-hmm. when, when Paul interacted with his own church plants, I, I know you know the tone that he took with them. Shall I come to you in gentleness or with a whip? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you'll see the authority that I have. And you receive right. my word as it is, not the word of men, but of God. This is not an appeal for a vote. This is Paul operating in apostolic authority and, and commanding that people do things in the name of the Lord. So, I, I mean, I understand the Baptist position, but to suggest that 
that there's evidence for that in the first century, that this is how the New Testament church has functioned, seems to me to fly just flat against the evidence of the text. And, and as soon as you step out of the New Testament into the earliest apostolic literature, like the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, I know mm-hmm. you've probably read those too, uh, you know, the one who doesn't receive the bishop doesn't receive Jesus. The Eucharist right. that is celebrated without the bishop is invalid. I mean, it's, it's full-on mono-episcopacy in the letters of Ignatius. Now, um, you, you said something that interested me. You said you grew up in the IFB. I know a little bit about the IFB. I didn't grow up in the IFB. I grew up Presbyterian. But I know that the IFB is, uh, I mean, they, they put the fundy in fundamentalist, right? <laughs> and, right. And, though, and though their avowed doctrinal position is congregationalism and democratic government, in practice, their ordained ministry function with an incredible amount of authoritarian power. And at a practical level, if the pastor of an IFB church says, this is the way we're going to go, psychologically, it is, it is nigh unto impossible for, for people to take a contrary point of view. And if they do, they're very often subject to church discipline. And if they're, say, under the age of 18, sometimes to extraordinary forms of corporal punishment. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with what I'm talking about, the, 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 the tsunami of, of abuse claims that have been brought against pastors of the IFB in the last 20 years is just astronomical. And, and some right. of it's like, and I'm not just talking about sexual abuse, I'm talking about like violent abuse of children and, and way over-the-top corporal punishment. So mm-hmm. I am totally sympathetic to somebody who grows up in that kind of authoritarian fundamentalist culture being very wary of handing what would seem to be unlimited to authority to a church leader. And so let me address that question, like from somebody coming out of the IFB. And I also was raised in a quasi-fundamentalist background. As a Catholic, I have infinitely more personal autonomy as a Catholic than I ever had as a Presbyterian or would ever have as a member of the IFB. And the reason why is that we have a real we have really delimited areas of authority. The Pope's authority is not absolute. For example, the Pope's authority is stops at the door of my conscience. Cardinal Newman, who is now Saint John Henry Newman, uh, canonized, uh, uh, was famous for his uh, letter to the Duke, what Duke of Wellington, on the dignity of conscience. And he says, you know, if I had to make a toast in matters of religion, which would probably be in bad taste, but if I did it, he said, I would, I would, I would toast the Pope, but I would toast conscience first, the aboriginal vicar of Christ. And Catholic doctrine is that if your pastor or your bishop or the Pope commands you to do something that violates your conscience, you are morally obligated to disobey the Pope. And, and so the, the, the authority of the Pope is... is, is, is immense, but it's delimited. And also, here's another area of freedom for the Catholic. Because the Church distinguishes dogma and canon law on the one hand from, say, pastoral policy and theological opinion on the other, it is perfectly legitimate. In fact, the Code of Canon Law insists that lay people have a right 
to to dissent from what they regard as uh, imprudent or ill-considered actions. There's a there's a freedom of movement within Catholicism that does not exist within fundamentalism. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Next up is Martha, another first time caller in the great state of South Carolina, listening on Sirius XM channel one thirty. Martha, you're on with Doctor Anders. Thank you. I have a question for you, Doctor Anders. Sure. Baptism. My husband. Uh, was not Catholic when we married, but converted about, I don't know, 25 years ago. And he is very happy being Catholic. But at the time of his um, conversion, I had been told by his uh, our sister-in-law that he had been baptized in the Presbyterian Church. And... He just received First Communion and Reconciliation at the time. Since then, uh, in the last six months, my sister-in-law has said, no, her husband, uh, my husband's brother, and my husband, neither one were ever baptized in the Presbyterian Church, and that they were not ever attending church. So my question now is, uh, he's been a practicing Catholic for 25 years, but it turns out he's not been baptized. All right, I got a couple questions for you. Um, sure. First of all, is this the same sister-in-law that changed her tune? Yes. So, well, that's certainly not your fault. Um, uh, do you? Th- why do you think she said initially that he had been baptized and then and then changed her mind? I think she thought both of both of the young men had been baptized and must have later found out and never informed me. Okay. But, My next question uh, is: is typically when someone is received into the Catholic Church, they have to give proof of their baptism. And the the preferred way would be to produce a baptismal certificate. So I don't suppose when he was received into the church, they asked for any documentation at all. That would be very unusual for them not to ask. Do you remember uh, that? They did. They did ask, but his mother and father were both dead at the time, and uh, the sister-in-law, of course, did not have anything. Okay. So here's here's the situation that you're in. And, I, and I'm just giving you my best judgment. If, if I were the priest in this situation, I would conclude that there is a question about the validity of his baptism, but I'm, I'm not, as the priest, I'm not certain that he's unbaptized. I'm not certain that he is baptized, because the evidence of his baptism has now recanted her testimony. So there's, there's ambiguity there, and it's not certain one way or the other. When you are uncertain about the status of a person's baptism, what you do is you perform a conditional baptism. That, that's the way you rectify it. And if I were the priest in this situation, I would, that's probably what I would do is a conditional baptism. 
Now, your your concern is going to be over what about the status of the last 25 years of his Catholic life? Okay, well, obviously, y- you guys were moving forward in good faith, 100% good faith. So you've done absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever at all. And while the sacraments that he received in the Catholic Church uh, would have been given improperly, and some of them received invalidly, um, that doesn't mean that God's grace has not been at work in his life. Obviously, God's grace has been at work in his life. And so the sacraments are given for our benefit so that we have an objective, tangible, visible, auditory sign of God's favor, of God's acceptance, of God's grace being extended to us. But the sacraments are not given to constrain God. And so God can certainly work in extra-sacramental ways, even if through no fault of his own, your husband has failed to receive a valid sacrament. doesn't mean that God can't work around that, so to speak, and, and be at work in the life of your husband's soul, which I presume that he is because he's he's got faith and he's been living with the mind of the church and his moral life is reformed and all these kinds of things that are so beautiful. So obviously, uh, that's that's pretty good presumptive evidence of grace in the man's life. So you, you don't need to be guilty. He doesn't need to be anxious. He doesn't need to be worried about it. Um, but I, what I would do is I'd bring the concern to the priest and I'd say, you know, we've we've learned that there's a, we didn't know this 25 years ago, there's a reason to doubt his, the validity of his baptism. So we would really like to <clears throat> you know, have the conditional baptism and then and, and make sure he can receive the sacraments validly and, and go forward and rectify everything. So now we've got certainty about it. But put your mind at ease as far as his past is concerned. He's been operating in good faith, and God's obviously at work in your life and in your marriage. You know, a few, a few years ago, we had a situation where not just lay people like you, but there have even been priests, priests who've been operating in pastoral ministry, who learned that their baptisms were invalid, and and therefore their ordinations were invalid, and they'd been functioning as priests without valid orders. And uh, and this is what they did. You go take care of it, you get the valid baptism, they got, you know, ordained the right time this time around, and and they just kept going, and like there was, you know, they fixed the problem and moved forward. That's what you got to do. Does that help you, Martha? That's a great answer. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate the phone call. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. I'm a little surprised that they didn't conditionally baptize him at the beginning with having no substantial proof of his baptism. Um, Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised, too. I'm a little bit surprised, too. But, um, you know, priests are human beings, and they make judgment calls, and, and... you know, no two priests makes exactly the same judgment call in the exact same situation. But I, and I think it should be noted, it seems obvious, but just to put anybody else's mind at rest who might be listening. So let's suppose he was baptized. Yes. Let's suppose he had received a conditional baptism when he entered the church or when he thought he was entering the church. And he receives a conditional baptism today. The one that really counts is the one that'll count. That's right. And the other ones will not be to his detriment. The reason we have conditional baptism is that if you're already baptized, it isn't a baptism. It's just a wedding. <laughs> W-E-T-T-I-N-G. Just a little little bracing dampness on the forehead. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Jamie is in East Tennessee watching us on YouTube today. Jamie, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hello to everyone there called to communion, and thank you very much for taking my call, Dr. Andrews. 
my question is about something I've heard you mention in the past, um, and I didn't quite get the under, an understanding of it, but it has to do with the difference between a dogma and an opinion when it comes to the essentials, essentials of Christian belief. And if I got the words wrong, I apologize, and I would yep. humbly ask you to correct me. Yep. Can you speak on that a little bit? I can speak on that. Jack, what do you want to I say? I want to ask you a question before you answer her okay. question. In your evangelical days, was dogma a four-letter word? It, yes. It was in mine as yes. well. Yeah. it was a four-letter word, absolutely. So uh, a dogma is a teaching of the Catholic faith that is proposed as true because it has been divinely revealed— specifically divinely revealed, and has been solemnly declared by the Church. And so uh, the paradigm case would be the dogma of the Blessed Trinity. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the, the highest category of belief that you can have as a Catholic is a dogma. A doctrine is a teaching of the Catholic faith that lacks one or the other of those qualifications— now that that doesn't make doctrine untrue. It's it's a it's a different way of arriving at truth, and it and it it has a different relationship to our hierarchy of belief. Let me give you an example of a doctrine that is not a dogma. It's true. It's authoritative. Catholics are bound to believe it, but it's not a dogma. The doctrine that only men can be priests. The Church has said emphatically that is the case. Only men can be made priests. Only men can be ordained. But, but no pope has ever said the fact of the, ma- of the male-only priesthood is presented to us as a teaching of divine revelation that I, the pope, now solemnly define. Now, that doesn't mean that Catholics are free to discard it, but it's a different way of arriving at the truth, and a different, it bears a different relationship to the hierarchy. What I mean by the hierarchy is that Second Vatican Council said there is a hierarchy of truths. All truths are true— you know, it, it, it's true that I ate a whole grain English muffin for breakfast this morning. That's true. Nothing you say can make that untrue. It's, it's hardly significant, right? It's trivial in the grand scheme of things. The, the highest truth in the hierarchy of truths is the fact of God's existence. Everything else hangs on that. You could have the whole of Catholic practice and doctrine. You take away the existence of God and the entire thing falls apart. Right? So, logically, it stands at the, the bedrock of the entire system. The Trinity would be right below the existence of God in terms of significance and, and authority. The Incarnation after that, the foundation of the Church, the sending of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the sacraments, uh, the, uh, the inevitability of the four last things. These, I'm sort of going down the order in the hierarchy of truths. Obviously, as you're preaching the gospel, the kerygma, what we call the message of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, is central to our presentation of the truth. Um, uh, the truth that only men can be priests is also true, must be believed by Catholics, but it doesn't stand in quite that same relationship. You know, when I, if I were to go out on the street corner and say, you know, Jesus died for your sins, come to faith, and you can go to heaven, and, oh, by the way, only men can be priests. Right? It's just not the context for that. Um, an opinion is when a private theologian like you or like me or like Jack, uh, for that matter, like the Pope when he operates as a private theologian, is speculating on some theological matter and trying to work out you know, what would a rational explanation of this phenomenon be? 
and he's using his own speculative reason, bringing that to bear on the data of Revelation uh, to try to make sense of something. But the answer that he comes to is, uh, you know, that's his opinion. It's never been declared as a doctrine of the Church. It may be true. It might not be true. It, it, it's interesting to discuss, and let's put it out there and have a conversation about it. I'll give you one. I'll give you an example of a theological opinion. It happens to be one of mine, okay? The Church teaches the dogma of purgatory. Purgatory exists. You make reparation, you get purification. That's a dogma. We can pray for the souls in purgatory. That's also a dogma, all right? Uh, those things are true. Beyond that, the Church is pretty quiet on purgatory. How exactly does it work? You know, I mean, do we, do we, you know, do I have to, like, is there a punch card? Do they put me on a rowing machine? You know, like, what are the details of purgatory? Church doesn't say. So here's my private theological opinion. I have reasons for it. Um, the vision of God, vision of God, is something that impure eyes cannot see. Well, you ever try to look at the sun? What happens to you? It's painful. So I sometimes wonder if the pain of purgatory isn't the experience of the vision of God for those who are not yet ready. And so the very same fire that purifies the imperfect soul painfully is the glorious vision of God for those who are made ready. And so it's, a, it's like when I used to be, run into my grandfather when I was a teenager, and he was just this man of incredible integrity and virtue. The mere sight of my grandfather would make me feel guilty because he was just so nice and good. Nothing changed in him, but his presence sort of burned me to my quick. Isaiah, when he sees the vision of God in Isaiah 6, he says, I'm toast. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Is that how purgatory works? I don't know. I got the idea out of Catherine of Genoa, a saint and a visionary who had a vision of purgatory and the vision of God where she suggests these kinds of things. Is that dogma? No. It's a way of thinking about purgatory. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a, you know, maybe there's a punch card to treadmill. I don't know. Jeff is up next. He's in Reardon, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Jeff, you're on with Dr. David Andrews. Thanks for taking my call. You can hear me? Mm-hmm. Sure yeah, I, I, a couple questions for you. Um, the other day, I, I have a children's Bible, and when I have my grandkids, I try to read to them a little bit. And I, One's in preschool, one's second grade, and I read them the creation, where in six days he he built everything and created everything, and then the seventh day he rested. And when I finished, the second grader said to me, Grandpa, I know that God made everything, but who made God? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. I really appreciate the question. So I, I got a couple things to say about this. Um, let's take an analogy. If I shine a light on the wall and the wall is illumined, the light has illumined the wall. Well, what light illumines the light? The question doesn't make sense. The light is the source of illumination. Light is the sort of thing that doesn't have to be lit up by something else. In the same way, the word, what the word God means, God means where the buck stops. God is the first principle. God is the being that has to exist, whose existence is necessary. You know, if, um, if, uh, if, I, if I ask... Jack for a hundred dollars, 
And he says, well, sure, Anders, I'll pay you 100 bucks, but I got to go borrow it from Johnette. Johnette says, well, I'll lend it to you, Jack, but I'm going to borrow it from Tom. And Tom says, well, I've, I've got to get it from Adrian. And Adrian says, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go get it from Sally. Well, that, that'll work for so long, but eventually somebody's got to have the 100 bucks, right? God is where the 100 bucks stops, 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Still time for your phone calls. Um, Register Radio, be sure to check it out Saturday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll be talking with Prudence Robertson the host of EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly on abortion and the recent election fallout, and also Elias Turk on the Middle East and how Christians are faring there. That's Register Radio Saturday afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is George in Pennsylvania. Listen, you got Sirius XM Channel 130. George, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Yeah, Dr. Anders, appreciate your time here. Um, question is, God died for our sins. When I was born, I was baptized, which got rid of original sin. And then in my adult life, I've gone to confession, which got rid of the balance of my sins, hopefully. Not the atonement for, but, you know, the forgiveness of. So why did God need to die on the cross if I have the two sacraments? Is it God dying on the cross create those two sacraments? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the death of Christ benefits us in multiple ways. One way the death of Christ benefits us, you've already suggested, and that is that it was objectively meritorious, it was pleasing to God, and God rewards Christ by pouring out upon his body, the Church, the gift of the Holy Spirit which is the source of the power, the efficacy of the sacraments. The sacraments flow, as it were, from the pierced side of Jesus. So the death of Christ merits for us the grace of redemption that we receive in the sacraments. Um, The death of Christ is also an example to us. St. Peter says explicitly in 1 Peter that Christ died leaving us an example to follow. Sanctification, growth and holiness, the love of God, means that we, we come to learn to lay down our lives for other people, as, as Christ laid his life down for us. And so it's an ever-present source of inspiration to us to conform our lives to his way of life. If you want to be my disciples, take up your cross like I did and follow me. The death of Christ is also a conquest of, of, of death, sin, hell, and the devil. Uh, St. Paul says that we die with Christ in baptism and are raised again with him to new life, that there is a kind of mystical union between the soul and Christ in his crucifixion, <coughs> effected by, in us by baptism, whereby this principle of dying and rising becomes assimilated into us, and that, that becomes the pattern of our own moral life, dying to self and rising again to righteousness. And So the death of Christ, as an objective fact, took place on Calvary 2,000 years ago and was sufficient to merit forgiveness of sins for the whole world. But there's also the subjective application of its benefits to me. And and for that, it's, you know, like the doctor said, take as directed. 
the application of those benefits to my soul requires my ongoing participation. Still time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. Got an email from Mary, and she said, I had a discussion with my daughter about the church, and she learned while attending a Catholic university in a class called The History of Theology that Thomas Aquinas said something about women not being able to become priests because they have an inverted penis that is not fully formed, and so they were weaker and cannot become priests. This class was part of the reason my daughter left the church, and so I am suspicious about everything she was taught by a so-called professor. I would appreciate your help in responding. Yeah, thanks. Uh, She's confusing a number of different issues, right? She is confusing a number of different issues. On on the one hand, uh, she's confusing the church's doctrine of the holy priesthood with outdated ideas about human anatomy. And uh, it is true that ancient peoples, not just Thomas Aquinas, but a lot of ancient peoples in different cultures, um, had some really messed up ideas about female anatomy and how it functioned. And it was a common opinion, not of Christian origin, I mean, this has got its pagan roots, that uh, that the difference between a man and a woman was that a woman was a like a man that didn't get cooked enough in the womb, like a kind of like not quite finished man. And that if you if you you know had enough heat in the uterus, that was actually one of the theories that you could develop the fetus completely, and then all the parts would come out, and you'd have a man. And if you didn't have that, then you had a woman. So there's a it was a there was a biology of female inferiority. Um, those kinds of theories are common in the ancient world, and again, not just to medieval Christians, but I mean, you're, you're going to find throughout culture uh, some really misogynistic ideas about the relationship of the sexes. Uh, it is the virtue of Catholicism that that in the Latin West, both with the advent of the scientific revolution and the empirical method, and with the doctrine of the dignity of human persons, um, uh, misogyny I won't say it's gone away. We still have, uh, it's, it's in evidence in the world today, obviously. But the recognition that it, at least it was a bad thing arises in the Latin Catholic West and the roots of its extirpation from within the heart of the Christian faith. So what's the Catholic position? Catholic position is that men and women have equal dignity uh, before God as human beings and equal capacity uh, to, to be saved and to manifest God's likeness and image. And that the conscience of both men and women is inviolable and sovereign. Thus, women in in late antiquity, while they were mere property in Roman law, as Christians learned that they could, for example, say no to men about their advances and refuse marriage to pagan men or Christian men, for that matter, that they didn't want to marry. And we actually hallow these women in the canon of the Mass, the most sacred part of our liturgy, as the virgin martyrs. And so my position is that the Catholic Church produced the world's first feminists, the first women who said, I'm not going to do what this man tells me to do with my body. I choose to give my virginity to Jesus Christ, and I will die a martyr's death rather than do what you say. And we venerate those women for their defense of the dignity of their own conscience. Again, in Roman and Germanic society, women had no say in their marriage. Catholic canon law from the beginning has said that a woman has the right to refuse marriage and that a marriage conducted without her consent is not valid. 
that was an incredibly revolutionary position to take in the ancient world and the medieval world, and it was the genius of the Catholic Church. Um, the, the doctrine of human rights is an outgrowth of the Catholic and Thomas Aquinas' specifically, Aquinas' doctrine of natural law, but applied to the case of indigenous peoples overseas during the colonial era. Uh, Jesuit and Thomistic theologians and Dominicans came up with the idea that all people have inherent human rights, Therefore, European colonialists cannot enslave Native Americans. The fact that colonialists did so anyway uh, just meant that they didn't listen to their good moral theologians. But that, there's nothing new about that. But the principle of human rights and human dignity, again, from the bosom of the Catholic faith. Uh, principles of jurisprudence. Uh, take, for example, the, um, the standard of reasonable doubt that we just think is such a bedrock part of our judicial system. Where did that come from? It actually arose from Catholic jurists and legal theorists who wanted to know whether or not juries could safely cast a, a, a guilty verdict in a capital case. Why was that a question? Because jurors didn't want to be held responsible for the death of an innocent person. Do you think Genghis Khan ever worried for one second about the dignity of his conscience in condemning someone to death? But in the Catholic context, that was a real concern. And so things like the standard of reasonable doubt emerge in Catholic jurisprudence out of the Catholic doctrine of the dignity of conscience. Conscience, women, uh, uh, freedom, these are, these are Catholic ideas, irrespective of what harebrained schemes ancients may have had about female anatomy. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We do the program every day, Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern Time. Be sure to check us out. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. God bless. God bless.